This week on Obsessed with Investing, we'll explore some of the hottest stocks in the world's soon-to-be-largest economy, China. I'll tell you my biggest concerns about the Chinese market and explain why the question is no longer if you should invest in China, but when and how much. Hey everybody, I'm Value Prof and welcome to Obsessed with Investing where we analyze the latest news and investing trends to help you make better financial decisions and successfully navigate the stock market. We'll discuss individual companies and sector trends, political and economic news, and do deep dives into topics like building a dividend growth portfolio, how to find great emerging market stocks, and how to prepare for the next market crash. So each week on the show, we do two to three segments. First, I like to start with the biggest news stories of the week that are affecting the market and give you my take on those. And then we move on to our discussion of whatever the topic of the week is. Of course, this week it's China, and uh, we're going to get into some of the history of Chinese politics, what's currently going on there economically, politically, and how to approach investing in China and what some of my favorite stocks are. I want to make sure to give you a broad overview so that you've got a good idea of where to start your research and how to apply your own investing philosophy to this very complex but very strong market. With that said, let's get right into our first segment, News Rant. This is News Rant for the week of October 30th, 2017. Now, I try to record these episodes and have them ready for Monday. I like to record on Friday. This week, I waited a little longer because so much news seemed to be coming out at the end of the week. I was not planning on discussing Russia this week, but of course, we got the bombshell on Friday that Robert Mueller has filed the first indictments in the Russia probe with arrests coming as soon as Monday. The indictment was sealed. That's pretty standard in a highly charged political case like this. So let's look at the possible targets of these arrests or arrest to see what might have the biggest effect on the markets and on Donald Trump's presidency. The three names that have been floated as the most likely to be indicted first are Michael Flynn, Trump's former national security advisor, Paul Manafort, Trump's campaign chair for a period of time in the April, June, July period of the campaign, and Jared Kushner, Trump's son-in-law and current senior advisor in the White House. Michael Flynn's alleged crimes include lying to the FBI in disclosure forms and interviews about his foreign contacts. He worked to aid Turkish President Recep Erdogan's attempts to extradite Fethullah Gulen for prosecution in Turkey. Uh, Gulen is an Islamic cleric, more of an intellectual kind of secular guy, actually. But he has been, and this is in my opinion, um, scapegoated by Erdogan's government and accused of fomenting a coup that tried to remove Erdogan. We don't really know the truth about a lot of that, but Fethullah Gulen is living here in the United States, and it seems that as Erdogan has attempted to consolidate power, he is trying to cast Gulen as the instigator of the uprising against him, when it is very unclear if that is the case, and very possible that Gulen is simply being targeted falsely by Erdogan and could very well face death in Turkey if brought back there. So Michael Flynn was aiding Erdogan's attempts to extradite Gulen. Paul Manafort, um, he has been accused of money laundering and tax evasion primarily. There have been other allegations against him in the Steele dossier that we don't have enough information about yet. But the allegations that have been reported on so far basically say that Manafort allegedly laundered money through multiple New York City real estate deals that also possibly could include a deal for a unit in Trump Tower that he purchased. If this is true, and he did launder this money that he received from Russian and Ukrainian oligarchs and their companies for his consulting work, it would be possible for these crimes to be charged at both the federal and the local or state level. Trump cannot pardon state and local crimes, so that might be one reason why Manafort could be the first one indicted. In addition, Manafort's 
home was raided for evidence in late July, and Mueller reportedly told his attorney that he was going to indict him. So this is why the media thinks that Manafort would be a likely first target. The money in question that was laundered includes $17 million plus that he received in consulting fees from former Ukrainian President Viktor Yanukovych to improve Viktor's public image prior to his election, and tens of millions of dollars from Russian aluminum magnate Oleg Deripaska to advance his and Russia's interests in the USA. Going along with this is the accusation that Manafort did not register as a foreign agent as he would have been required to do acting on behalf of foreign oligarchs to advance Turkish and Russia's interests here. And he retroactively registered as a foreign agent after all of this was reported last fall. So that could easily be considered a crime in itself. So lots of possible angles to attack Manafort here, and it's widely assumed that he will be indicted. So if he's not indicted first, it'll make it even more interesting. Jared Kushner is the last of the big three, I would say. Trump's son-in-law had the most reported interactions with Russians during the campaign and also failed to report most of those meetings, if not all of them, and hundreds of other foreign contacts on multiple security clearance forms to the FBI. Now, in July, multiple members of Trump's legal team recommended that Kushner step down from his White House role due to the Russia investigation. So clearly, internally, there was already some worries among Trump's lawyers at the White House that Kushner posed a big problem and that his contacts and failing to disclose them could be an issue for him in this investigation. There are a number of smaller players that could also be indicted. The first person I'll look at here is Carter Page. Carter Page was on Trump's first foreign policy advisory team. This was while he was a candidate and he was kind of pressured by the media to release a list of names of advisors that he was getting counsel from. So Carter was in that group and the accusation for him is very interesting. I'll just give you one quick quote from Business Insider that kind of sums this up. Quote, a dossier with unverified claims about President Donald Trump's ties to Russia contained allegations that Igor Sechin, the CEO of Russia's state oil company Rosneft, offered former Trump ally Carter Page and his associates the brokerage of a 19% stake in the company in exchange for the lifting of U.S. sanctions on Russia. The dossier says that the offer was made in July when Page was in Moscow giving a speech at the Higher Economic School. The claim was sourced to, quote, a trusted compatriot and close associate, end quote, of Sechin, according to the dossier's author, former British spy Christopher Steele. So clearly, if these claims are true, this is really bad for Carter Page and for Trump in general, because this is kind of the crux of the most treasonous allegation in the Steele dossier. The media is not paying much attention to Carter Page as an important person. That's why I've included him under these smaller players. But I do think that it will become a much bigger issue if he is indicted with a crime. The other players here, I'm just going to kind of rattle them off because I think personally these people are less likely to be indicted now based on what we know, but the possibility is there. So we should just be ready for it. Uh, the first is Donald Trump Jr. For his involvement in the meeting at Trump Tower with Russian attorney Natalia Veselnitskaya, who had promised him damaging information on Hillary Clinton. Also, Trump's former policy advisor, George Papadopoulos, who is part of that first foreign advisor group. Roger Stone, who allegedly colluded with Russian hackers and WikiLeaks to coordinate the releasing of the stolen DNC emails. There's also been discussion that Attorney General Jeff Sessions could be indicted. Sessions was one of Trump's earliest campaign supporters, but it's been suggested that he may have perjured himself at his Senate hearings about the Russia probe by not disclosing his meetings with Russian Ambassador Sergei Kislyak or the content of those meetings, which may have had to do with Trump's position on Russian sanctions. And this was before Trump took office. And finally, Donald Trump himself could possibly be indicted. Obviously, this is highly unlikely at this stage in this investigation, but there has been a case allegedly made against him that he obstructed justice for firing James Comey and saying that it was because of memos that Jeff Sessions and Rob Rosenstein had prepared for him, when in reality, he had asked them to prepare those memos and he had already decided to fire Comey in part because of the Russia investigation. 
Next up, we have some updates about healthcare and tax reform, as well as an update about Trump's search for the new Fed share. So health reform is a quick one. The effort is basically dead for now. There was some talk that Trump thought he had enough of a coalition together to pass a repeal of Obamacare, but now it seems like we're living with the status quo here for a while, and um, they're not going to attempt a repeal and reform legislation until next year. So that's off the table for now, according to Paul Ryan. For tax reform, um, we had some positive signs earlier in the week and last week, and then some negative signs later this week. The positive signs were that GDP growth here in the U.S. surged to 3% in the third quarter after a previous quarter of about 3.1%. It's been the best streak in about three years of GDP growth, so that's really positive. New business equipment orders were up. Um, that's what we call a leading indicator. That's a sign that the economy is improving. It's what we like to see for the stock market. It just signals that everything is moving along well. Businesses are feeling confident enough to invest in new equipment to replace their old equipment, which typically you don't see if a recession is coming or if you're in a recession. Congress also passed a measure that would add up to $1.5 trillion to the budget deficit over the next 10 years. This is roughly in line with what economists have projected Trump's tax reform would cost in lost revenue. So this is seen as clearing a major hurdle to passing the tax bill because the Republican Party is full of these deficit hawks that didn't want to see any increase to the budget deficit. The plan was projected to increase it by about $1.5 trillion to $2 trillion. So this basically paves the way by making that space available in the budget to pass a major tax cut without offsetting that lost revenue. However, there were some negative signs that emerged later in the week. After a falling out over the mortgage interest deduction for homeowners, the National Association of Home Builders, or NAHB, it's a major lobbying group, formerly a major supporter of Paul Ryan's tax reform effort, has now announced that it will put its significant resources into opposing the bill instead. The NAHB split with Ryan's plan to double the standard deduction from $12,000 to $24,000 for couples, which would cause fewer people to itemize deductions. The NAHB was quoted as saying, by sharply reducing the number of taxpayers who would itemize, what's left is a tax bill that essentially eviscerates the mortgage interest deduction and strips the tax code of its most vital homeownership tax benefit. This tax blueprint will harm home values, act as a tax on existing homeowners, and force many younger aspiring home buyers out of the market. So the thinking by the NAHB is that, you know, if you double the standard deduction from twelve dollars to $24,000, a lot more couples are going to use it. Therefore, they're not going to be able to use the mortgage interest deduction and buying a home is then less appealing for people that need to finance it. Of course, for the GOP, this doesn't really affect the ultra rich because typically they will be buying their homes in cash. So this is really only affecting people that finance their home purchases. The next negative sign for tax reform is that Trump and Congress are now at odds over tax-deferred 401k rules. So Trump said that the current 401k rules would remain unchanged. Those are that employees can contribute up to $18,000 a year if they're under 50 or up to $24,000 a year if they're over 50 to their employer's 401k plans. Some of those plans have matching provisions, but Republicans have proposed reducing the limit to $2,400 per year in those tax-deferred accounts. So that's a huge difference, especially when you consider the matching that would occur because the matching is not applied to those limits from an employer. So that could really reduce the amount of money that people are saving in these plans. And of course, if you contribute to a tax deferred account, that means that you can deduct it from your annual income and that you don't have to pay taxes on that money until you withdraw it after you retire or uh, leave employment. That proposal is estimated to generate an extra $115 billion per year in tax revenue by shifting those contributions from a tax-deferred account to a taxable account or to a Roth account where you pay taxes upfront but not on withdrawal. But the problem with those calculations is that while you're making more tax revenue early on because these people are paying more taxes on that money, you could be losing a lot of tax revenue later on if people don't save as much money or if they're putting it in accounts like Roth accounts that are not taxed later on. It's not as simple as just saying we're going to save $115 billion every year. That might happen in year one, but in year 10, there's a good chance that you'd be losing a lot of money because there'd be less money invested and you wouldn't be collecting taxes on these withdrawals, and especially for people who are 
in retirement. The second problem with that is that in order for the GOP to pass a tax bill without a Democratic filibuster, they have to do it through budget reconciliation. And that means that they need to create a plan that does not increase the budget deficit after a decade. That's one reason that they passed that $1.5 trillion increase to the budget deficit. So we really don't know how much net revenue this would generate over a longer 10-year period or where it would leave the budget deficit at the end of that period and going forward. So the bottom line is that it's likely that this proposal wouldn't have a huge net impact on tax revenues in the long term, and it could severely negatively impact the amount of money most Americans save for retirement. I foresee a big backlash to this from the big asset managers like BlackRock or Vanguard and banks that manage pension funds and 401 Ks for big institutions. There's a lot of money that's going in to these banks and these asset managers from these contributions to 401k plans. So if that's decreased a lot, their revenues are going to be impacted. And typically, Wall Street and Republicans go hand in hand. So if Wall Street has a problem with this, I think it's going to be a big issue for passing this bill. Finally, it's now reported that Trump is leaning towards current Fed Governor Jerome Powell to replace Janet Yellen as chair of the Federal Reserve. As we discussed last week, if correct, this will be seen as a continuance of Yellen's dovish monetary policy and should temper the dollar in the near term since the dollar typically gets stronger as interest rates rise. Trump was quoted as saying about Janet Yellen, in one way, I'd have to say you'd like to make your own mark, which is maybe one of the things she's got a little bit against her. But I think she's terrific. We had a great talk and we're obviously doing very well together if you look at the markets. So I think the potential long-term issue here is that Donald Trump seems to view his role as preserving this extended bull market that we're in and not necessarily doing what's best to prepare and protect the economy from a possible recession down the road. A pick like Taylor might have been seen more as that type of thinking, whereas Powell as a pick, given Trump's quotes like that, seemed to think he's taking the advice of Steve Mnuchin that Powell will continue the market's current trend upward, it's not going to rock anything, and uh, it's kind of the path of least resistance here. But as we've seen under Yellen, low rates do push investors to invest in equities and high yield bonds, even at high valuations, to get the expected returns that they need, uh, whether it's for a pension fund to hit their target rates or just for individual investors that are not satisfied with, let's say, like a 2 or 3% 10 year expected return. That's one reason that we're seeing these equity valuations keep getting pushed higher and higher and higher, especially in areas like utilities, where typically people would would shift out of utilities once the yields are low enough. But now even at kind of low 2-3% yields for utilities, the prices are still being bid up because the yields are so low on government bonds and even on corporate issues. So while this news about Powell might not shake the markets, I do think that this type of monetary policy increases the potential for a major market correction down the road and could leave rates too low if they're not sped up to lift the country out of a recession if one hits. The last item in the news today are the shakeups in the healthcare sector this week. Celgene, one of the largest pharmaceutical companies in the world, and unfortunately one of my own holdings, saw its stock tank over 30% this week, first on the news that one of its major new drug trials for Crohn's disease was scrapped after a nearly $500 million investment in the drug, and then on issuing lowered forward revenue and earnings guidance in its third quarter earnings report. This brought the entire pharmaceutical sector down about 5%. Some investors are worried that this has echoes of Gilead, which famously lost nearly half its value over the past two years before it started to rise again this June. But unlike Gilead, Celgene's revenue and earnings are still growing faster than most other big pharma companies, and it still has an amazing 50 drugs under development. As an investor myself, I don't expect that this will become a value trap type stock. Celgene has a very different model than Gilead, where it aggressively pursues partnerships or equity stakes in many smaller drug developers to keep its pipeline strong. Only time will tell, but I have a feeling that Celgene will recover from these low levels. Amazon has gained licenses in 12 states now to become a wholesale drug distributor, causing stock declines in drug distribution stocks like McKesson and Cardinal Health, as well as pharmacy benefit managers like Express Scripts and CVS. Reports soon emerged after this news that CVS was in talks to buy Aetna insurance for over $60 billion, but that might be difficult for them because CVS has a current PBM, that's Pharmacy Benefit Manager, partnership with Anthem, which is one of Aetna's main competitors in the insurance market. 
So if this is true, CVS would essentially eliminate the middleman between pharmacy and insurer here and be able to better compete with the industry leader that's United Health, as well as the largest private insurer, Kaiser Permanente, which is based here in California and basically has facilities along the West Coast and in Colorado, by managing both drug and medical costs for its patients. Aetna's own $37 billion attempt to merge with Humana was denied by the government and called off earlier in the year. Since all the moving parts in the drug supply chain can get really confusing, I'll put a helpful chart up on the show notes of the podcast to show the flow of the cash and products through the healthcare system. There are a lot of players and multiple middlemen here. So CVS is just making a big move like United has done before them and seems to be transitioning into more of a healthcare company than a pharmacy. It'll be interesting to see. I think there's some regulatory issues with this, but Anthem's stock was way up on the news about 12%. CVS's stock is down. Um, CVS's stock was already pretty depressed. So it'll be interesting to see if this goes through. Another piece of news with the Johnson & Johnson, um, their stock has just surged to a new high after they won a reversal of the $417 million judgment against them for baby powder causing ovarian cancer. And although Johnson & Johnson faces thousands of similar suits across the country for their talc powder, this is seen as a major positive for them because the lawyer in this particular case in California also represents all of the other California cases against Johnson & Johnson, and there are about 800 of those cases pending right now. So if this verdict and reasoning is applied to all of those other cases, Johnson & Johnson will see about 800 cases out of you know a few thousand canceled immediately. And then if that logic carries over to other cases in other states, they could see very little impact from this, despite apparently, uh, based on court documents, them knowing that this talc powder could cause cancer. Their stock has been depressed for a little while. I mean, for Johnson & Johnson, that doesn't mean much. You know, when they're down 10%, that's like a major drop. But I'll expect that their stock continues to get higher if we hear more positive news about these lawsuits being settled. Now it's time for our investing topic of the day, China, China, China. I want to give you a little bit of the history of China, their politics, their economy, and then move into some of the investing risks with China currently, as well as an overview of some of my favorite Chinese companies, uh, some of which I invest in. If you're interested in any of these companies, I highly recommend you learn more about them, try to use their products if you can, or if you have Chinese friends, ask them what they think about these companies. It really helps to get a local perspective. I do some business in China through my other work, so I've gained a little bit of an insight here, and um, I'm excited to share it with you because I think this is a really exciting market. It certainly comprises probably the top holdings for many, many hedge funds and mutual funds these days. And with the kind of economic growth that China is experiencing, and with it being much higher than the U.S.'s growth, it's a really good time to consider expanding your investment horizons there. There are a couple of ways that economists measure the size of an economy. China is actually already the biggest world economy when adjusted for purchasing power. It's a, something called purchasing power parity that adjusts GDP for differences in local prices. So essentially, if things are cheaper in China, their GDP will get an upward revision to account for the fact that a certain amount of income can actually buy more there than that same amount of income could buy in the US. Now, the U.S. has been the largest economy in the world for more than a century, so this is a pretty pivotal moment in world economics, and China is now on track to be the world's biggest economy on an unadjusted basis, so just pure dollar figures, um, before 2030, and possibly well before 2030. You know, we could be talking early 2020s even. China is also the largest green energy investor in the world and has pledged to invest nearly $370 billion into renewable energy projects by 2020. So that's a ton of money going into their green energy infrastructure. The only problem with that as investors is that not many of their energy or infrastructure stocks are directly available for U.S. investors to invest in through ADRs or stocks listed on NASDAQ, which a lot of their tech companies are 
we might have to wait a little bit, but I have a feeling that as that industry grows, we'll see some really great companies the average U.S. investor can invest in here. China's GDP growth over the past five years has been nearly 8%. This year, we've seen a slowdown to around 7%. The rest of the year and in 2018, it's looking at about 6.5%. And the projected growth over the next years after that is thought to get closer to 45 to 5% per year. I mean, still much higher than the US, which is at around 2 to 3% right now. So we're still about double US economic growth. And China has maintained that kind of growth for a long, long time. Time. It won't be surprising to learn that China has some of the largest companies in the world. The population is about 1.4 billion people, and they have the top four largest banks in the world. Those are the Industrial and Commercial Bank of China, China Construction Bank, the Agricultural Bank of China, and the Bank of China. Um, it also has the largest mobile company, the largest insurance company. That doesn't always mean that they're great to invest in. Most of those are state-owned companies. Uh, many of their companies are kind of hybrid, civilian, and state-owned. We'll discuss some of the risks with state-owned companies in China in a little bit. But before going into that, I wanted to give you a brief history of China's political rulers. Like Russia, power in China is not always held by the person with the title of president, but by the de facto leader of the Communist Party. So at times, they've had presidents who have not had as much power as the leader of the Communist Party. So from the end of Chairman Mao's rule in 1976, through his retirement in 1989, Deng Xiaoping led China's transition from a strict communist state under Mao to a more pragmatic communist-capitalist hybrid by gradually allowing increased private ownership and free marketplaces to develop in the country. And if you really want to understand China's culture and its economy and its politics, a good place to start is by studying Deng Xiaoping. Can't be overstated how important it is to understand the push and pull between communism and capitalism and free markets in China. Since this period under Deng Xiaoping, it's really been a battle in China between how much can we open up our markets and our society really to the outside world and capitalist ideas, democratic ideas, versus how many restrictions do we place on companies? How much state ownership does the government need to have to maintain control? especially culturally and politically, it's important to understand that. I think here it gets demonized a lot as like communism is bad in China, but in some ways it's been really good for the economy and there are obviously negative things. There's a lot more censorship there and there's a lot more intrusion into private companies by the state. But if you can wrap your head around the history of China and where its leaders have been trying to lead the country forward into the 21st century, it'll really inform your investing in helpful ways, I think. After Deng Xiaoping retired, Jiang Zemin continued Deng's successful reform policies throughout the 90s, and then Hu Jintao followed in 2003. He imposed more government control on society and some conservative cultural reforms, while taking a soft power, pro-business approach internationally, and increasing China's influence in emerging regions like Latin America, India, and Africa. China's economy grew at a consistently high rate under his leadership, and then Xi Jinping became president in 2013. Xi has amassed even more power than his predecessor just this month. He had his name and some of his most important policies actually written into the Chinese constitution, and he seems to follow in Hu Jintao's footsteps of expanding China's global reach and its domestic growth, trying to maintain the Communist Party's strict control of political and social life there, and cracking down on companies that push those liberal boundaries boundaries too far. He's also worked to increase public-private cooperation, including promoting co-ownership of some state-owned utilities and telecoms by private companies like JD and Alibaba. That's going to lead us naturally into discussing the risks of investing in China, specifically those for US-based investors. The first of which is government control. And there's always, like I said, this push and pull between the Communist Party and the liberalization of China and the expansion of capitalism in China. So it's something to always be aware of as an investor that there's kind of just always a chance that there's going to be a new government regulation or a fine out of left field if someone in the Communist Party decides that this is something that we need to rein in before it gets out of control. 
Um, it's, it's not really something you see in the U.S. where there's kind of this strict laissez-faire free market economy. Um, the government really doesn't get involved very much unless there's a corporate merger. Not nearly to the same extent as even in the EU, where you'll see some big fines levied like in, on Google for what here would be considered a fair free market practice. In China, it goes a little farther where you have a real political risk to investing there. There have been regulations imposed on social media companies, finding video streaming sites for uh, content that the party deemed to be pornographic or lewd or um, too political. Um, they have limited video game usage for minors there. Uh, that affected Tencent a little bit and NetEase, some of the companies that we'll discuss in a little bit. And then the, the other risk with government-run enterprises like China Mobile or China Construction Bank that we'll talk about is that with dividends, here we're very used to dividend growth being kind of a given with the companies we invest in. Not all companies grow their dividends, but there are a lot of dividend growers out there and we view it as a very predictable thing. In China, it's a little different where some companies might have a dividend growth policy, um, but a lot of state-owned companies, you know, they pay a good dividend, but it's not the same mentality about returning capital to shareholders. Um, typically with a state-owned enterprise in China, they will keep their capital or the government even at times has distributed the profits from one company to another competing company to foster better competition, to prevent monopolies from forming. Where in the U.S., that would really be unthought of, you know, that you would take profits away from like JP Morgan and give them to Citibank or something. Some of the stocks there, there's risk with that, like China Mobile, for instance, that has happened with. So you can't look at the profits of these companies as they're always looking to return as much capital to shareholders as they can, which is something that the market pressures U.S. companies to do a lot. Another risk to investing in China is the slowing economic growth. As we know, stock prices are based on future projections um, of what investors and analysts think uh, companies are going to make. And uh, to some extent, a lot of that is determined by the overall GDP growth of an economy. With China's economy slowing from like an 8% growth rate to now 7 to next year probably 6 or 5 the risk is that that gets reflected more and more in the stock prices and the price multiples of these stocks, many of which are pretty high. There are still some very reasonable value stocks out there with growth potential, but a lot of their big tech companies trade at pretty high multiples. So that is something to watch out for. Um, another big, big issue there is debt. And you will hear about Chinese debt all the time in politics and in the markets. You know, I don't think it's necessarily as big of an issue as it's made out to be certainly there should always be a caveat that says ballooning debt is a big problem in China, but it is still much less than the problems the U.S. has with debt. The overall debt to GDP in China is much lower than here in the U.S. And uh, China's national debt is now at around $4.5 trillion. Um, it's about a quarter of what the USA's is. And China additionally holds about 10% of the U.S.'s outstanding debt. At the end of the day, like I said, their debt to GDP is still much lower in the USA. A big concern there is consumer lending. Prior to the past couple years, government debt and corporate debt was expanding like crazy. The government is now getting that under control and that growth rate has lowered a lot. Consumer debt is increasing at a very high rate still. So that's auto loans and credit card debt and mortgage debt. The government has been working to cool their housing market. They've made so much money available to banks for consumer lending. And uh, now these consumers have taken out all these loans. So there's always a problem when consumer debt hits very high levels, as we've seen in the U.S. as well. That can be a big sign of triggering a recession if charge-offs to credit cards hit a certain amount and it really starts to put stress on the whole banking system. So we've discussed some of the political and economic risks of investing in China. The next one is currency risk, which you're always going to have investing in foreign stocks. The exchange rate between your local currency and their local currency is always going to affect both the value of your holdings and the profits of companies exporting and importing goods into the country. Typically, as the dollar gets stronger, 
Companies in China that import a lot of U.S. goods will see their profits fall because it's more expensive for them in their local currency to buy those products. And when the dollar falls, companies that import will see profits rise. And it's vice versa for exporters. When the dollar rises, their profits rise. When the dollar falls, their profits fall because they're selling and getting less local currency back after the exchange rate happens. So that's always important to be aware of when you're investing in any country. And a lot of investors use those exchange rates to make decisions as to when to time their investments into certain markets. The government also has unexpectedly devalued its currency in the past in China. And that, you know, always causes stock prices to fall because they've just infused the market with extra cash. Rising rates in the U.S. could cause the dollar to rise and thus dampen returns for some of those stocks that we're talking about. The final main risk I wanted to talk about is a very obvious one, and that's war with North Korea. If a war breaks out between the U.S. and North Korea, South Korea will be involved, Japan will be involved, Australia could potentially be involved, and China sharing a border with North Korea would be expected to experience an influx of millions of refugees from North Korea. It's a tough one because if war does not break out, then everything keeps rolling along just fine in China, um, despite the other issues we've talked about. But if it does, then there's probably gonna be a massive shift towards safer securities. Now let's dive into the fun part today, which is looking at all of these wonderful Chinese companies and uh, figuring out which ones we want to invest in. Um, first obvious one is Alibaba. They run Tmall. It's a huge business marketplace. It's the largest e-commerce platform in China, mainly for large businesses. Then there's Taobao, which is aimed at individuals and small businesses selling on their marketplace. That is the largest mobile e-commerce store in China. They also have AliExpress, which is open to international markets to enable people in the US or Europe to buy from Chinese companies selling on the site. Now, Alibaba is most similar to eBay and how it runs itself, although it probably operates more like an Amazon with the speed of its delivery and everything. But it works like eBay in that companies will set up a store on Alibaba's platform and they're selling direct to the customers through Alibaba and Alibaba is facilitating the payments and the delivery. So the great part about Alibaba is that their margins are very high because they don't actually own all the warehouses and all the inventory. They're just on the platform that all these companies are selling on. So their margins are much, much higher than JD or even retailers here like Walmart or Amazon, which have very low margins. So that's a big plus for Alibaba. And e-commerce is just one of their businesses. Even though it's the major one, they also have Alipay and Ant Financial, which is a division of theirs. It has asset management services, but Alipay is really the star, which is very similar to PayPal, although you can use it in stores there. And in China, using mobile wallets is the common practice there, unlike here, where it's still being slowly adopted. Alipay and Tenpay, their competitor Tencent's pay platforms, are accepted at most stores in China, and it's a very ubiquitous thing there. They also have Alibaba Cloud, which competes with Amazon AWS, uh, Microsoft, and Google's cloud platforms, and that's been growing at a phenomenal rate. They have Autonavi, which is their mapping and navigation software. Alibaba Pictures, which produces new movies in the Mission Impossible series um, and a lot of major pictures in China and in other markets like the US and Europe. Overall, Alibaba is a very diversified, high margin business. There's a lot to like. It's been growing at around a 40% rate per year, which is amazing for such a huge company. It's the top holding in, uh, I would say, most China funds along with Tencent. So that's a great place to start. And the ticker for Alibaba is simple. It's Baba, B-A-B-A. Next, we have Tencent, and their ticker is T-C-E-H-Y. It's an over-the-counter stock, so you won't be able to buy it on Robinhood, for instance, but you should be able to buy it at most brokerages like TD Ameritrade or Schwab or Fidelity. They make WeChat, which is the everything-in-one app that has nearly 800 million users, possibly more by now. Absolutely massive platform. It's uh, basically an app that does everything. An instant messaging app, you can buy things on it, talk to your friends, make phone calls. We don't really have anything like it in the US, 
but in China, it is the thing that everyone uses to communicate. Tencent has other services like music distribution. They're probably on track to be the biggest music distributor in China. They distribute HBO for video content, and they own stakes in a number of companies. They own 15% of JD.com, 5% of Tesla. They own 5% of Activision Blizzard. They have QQ Instant Messaging and QQ.com, which is a big email domain. But the biggest thing that Tencent does is gaming. It's the largest gaming company in the world. It owns Riot Games, which makes League of Legends, which is the biggest video game in the world. Um, it also has a stake in Epic Games, which makes Gears of War. Like I said, it owns 5% of Activision Blizzard, and then it distributes a lot of Activision titles in China. Blizzard is actually distributed by NetEase, which we'll get to. Basically, massive video game company, which is good and bad in some ways. Wii Game is their online gaming platform that competes with Steam. Got about 200 million subscribers. They distribute Nintendo in China. You know, I like video game stocks like Activision Blizzard I absolutely love because they are somewhat economically resilient in recessions. You know, when you think about recessions, people tend to watch more TV. People might not have as much money, but they tend to play video games more when they're out of work. And what happens in a recession is that unemployment rates typically rise. So you've got more people at home doing these things. I also like them because it's really a perpetual technological discovery engine with video games. The competitive environment really pushes every game to be better than the last. So it just drives a lot of really interesting new technology like virtual reality. And there are possibilities of expanding into other areas like competitive gaming teams. We've begun to see take hold as well with Activision, which brings me to our next company we'll look at, NetEase. The ticker there is N-T-E-S. They are the second largest gaming company in China and they distribute Blizzard in China. So that's games like Overwatch. And they also own the first Overwatch League team in China, which will probably be a huge success because Overwatch is just a massively addictive, popular online game with a huge community. And that is something that could generate a lot of money for them down the line. NetEase is also one of the largest email providers in China, and I always like that because I feel like email is a very sticky, moody type of business that it's very hard to switch email providers if you've got your whole life's emails in one account. So that's a large portion of their revenue. And another great thing about NetEase is that they're a dividend growth company. So they pay a nice dividend. I think it's like one and a half percent. They've grown it every year for the past few years and plan to keep doing so in the future. The next company is Baidu, uh, the ticker is B-I-D-U, and that's essentially the Google of China. It's pretty similar. The largest search engine by far, pretty much a total monopoly on search, although Tencent is now doing its own search within WeChat, which is such a big app that they're now a competitor with Baidu, but basically unchallenged in China in terms of search and also in terms of AI. Baidu was basically the first major investor in AI in China and may well be the first company in the world to bring self-driving cars to mass market. In fact, they've already set up facilities in Silicon Valley to test their driverless cars, and they could be brought to market in China as early as next year. I like Baidu right now. Their stock just tanked after earnings, and it's down about 8% now. It was down about 12% right after earnings. But they've been on a roll lately, so this would definitely be a good time to consider an investment in Baidu if you believe in their long-term future. One thing you'll notice is the analogous nature of these Chinese companies to their U.S. counterparts. The next company I really like there is ctrip.com. The ticker is CTRP. It's essentially the price line of China. It does airline, hotel, uh, event bookings. And it actually does a little more than Priceline does here. Priceline actually owns a stake in C-Trip. I think it's about 9% right now and partner with them in that market. Priceline initially started to go into China and the CEO of Priceline, who's a very visionary, well-respected CEO, essentially said that C-Trip was a great company and that they wanted to be owners in C-Trip and participate in its growth rather than act as a competitor to them. And like NetEase and Baidu, C-Trip is at a pretty good technical buying point right now if you believe in the long-term future of the travel industry in China. Both NetEase and C-Trip are about 20% off of their recent highs. And for these stocks with their growth rates, I think that's a good margin for me to consider a buy. The last of the kind of core privately owned companies in China that I wanted to mention to you is Yum China. Uh, the ticker is Yum C. 
And this is a pretty simple one. They just own KFC, Taco Bell, Pizza Hut, and a couple smaller fast food chains in China. So if you believe in the expansion story of Western fast food becoming popular in these emerging markets, this is a great stock to own. It was a spinoff from Yum Brands last year in 2016. It's performed really well so far, and they could certainly just be getting started. Next, we'll look at some more speculative plays, in my opinion, not necessarily because they're smaller industries, but I think they're, it's just a little harder to get good information about some of these companies here. Companies like Alibaba and Tencent are very popular with investors, so it's easy to learn a lot about them from doing research. These other companies, it's harder without some boots on the ground there to know what's going on, but I would definitely recommend checking them out because they've performed very well so far, and I, I think they're very promising companies for the future. The first one is Geely Automotive. That ticker is G-E-L-Y-F. They own Volvo worldwide, and they make automobiles as Geely and as Volvo, and they're very acquisitive. The automobile industry in China right now is very competitive, and the government is really trying to promote these domestic automakers. So Geely is basically the biggest one, and you can check out their website. Their cars look great. They're very popular there, and their stock has absolutely skyrocketed over the past year. I think it's up about 160% or something, but they certainly have a long way to go if you believe in the auto market in China. Like I said before, the ballooning consumer debt around auto loans is a concern, just like it's a concern here. We've had to heard the same things about Ford and GM's issues with giving auto loans to people with credit that wouldn't otherwise qualify. But I think Geely's in a good spot in China. The next one is New Oriental Education. The ticker is EDU, or there's TAL Education, which the ticker is TAL. EDU is a bigger company. I think it's a more proven stock. So I like that one if you're interested in the tutoring and educational testing services market in China. That's been expanding like crazy. China's been making a big effort to get more Western professors over there to tutor kids and to teach classes. Learning English is obviously huge there, but the government really understands the importance, I think, of education to driving its economic growth and transitioning into the kind of entrepreneurial society that has enabled the U.S. To to stay on top of the market for so long. So that's a great one. Ping On Insurance is the next one. The ticker for them is P-N-G-A-Y. They offer life and casualty insurance as well as banking and financial services like asset management. They are actually the world's most valuable insurance company and it's civilian run with partial government ownership. So I like that it's not totally state run. China Life is a more state run insurance company in China. I prefer Ping An. I think their stock has performed very well and I would definitely check them out. With these growing economies and more people owning houses and cars, insurance is a must with any of those things. So I think owning a great insurance company is a great way to capitalize on the growth of an economy where the middle class is expanding as fast as it is in China. The last more speculative stock here is YY. Ticker is YY. <laughs> they are a live streaming network uh, similar to YouTube. It's funded in a really interesting way there. They build up these network stars, kind of like big YouTube channels, I suppose. Fans of these channels make direct contributions to these stars over the network, and then YY takes a cut of that. It's been a really successful venture for them and a kind of a very novel way to run a business. My actually favorite part about YY is their online gaming site, Huya that drives a lot of its growth. It's really just live gaming and online gaming communities where uh, fans can watch other people play games and interact with them. But it's wildly popular. The only downside with that is that they compete with Tencent's Do You because Tencent, as the biggest gaming company in the world and having the biggest online gaming ecosystem like Steam, uh, which is Wii Game with Tencent, they're seen as a big risk for YY's Huya going forward. But at least in my anecdotal experience, Huya just seems like it's a little more popping than Do You is. I always look for engagement with things like that. So I think their engagement is great right now. YY's growth has been phenomenal. YY's management is not seen as trustworthy 
as some of these bigger companies. So there's been talks of the owners wanting to take it private again, and then they've given up that ambition. So right now the stock's on another tear, and it's the kind of company that you could get incredible returns with, or you could get burned if their numbers come down and Tencent starts to kind of take over that world. But for now, YY is a great pick, I think. Next up, we'll look at some state-run Chinese companies. There's just two here. There's some state ownership in Ping'an Insurance that I mentioned before as well. Some of these companies, the Chinese government might own like a 2% stake or 1% stake or something to have some input into it. But my favorite one really is the China Construction Bank. Their balance sheet is just great. Consistent revenue growth, consistent dividend growth, which is fairly rare among state-owned companies in China. They're the second largest bank in the world with $3 trillion in assets. It's a major corporate banker and lender, uh, but they also have a personal banking unit and some treasury services for the government. So if you're looking for financials in China and you're wary about state-owned enterprises, I would definitely start by checking out China Construction Bank. The ticker for them is C-I-C-H-Y. The next state-run company is China Mobile. They are the largest telecom in the world and they have a great valuation. They pay a very nice dividend, but the problem with it is really the government control. Because of that, the dividends are less reliable, I think, than a lot of other telecoms out there. I think that's the type of company that you should view as more of a bond substitute. Based on the valuation and the growth rate, it looks like it should just take off like a rocket, but the insecurity I think that investors feel because it's state-owned prevents the stock from really taking off as a growth stock. But as a value stock and kind of a bond substitute with like a 4% yield, I think it's a really good stock. The last group of stocks that I'd like to talk about are US stocks or European stocks that investors can look at as a possible play on the Chinese market where you'll experience some of the growth from the Chinese market that's a portion of these companies' revenues. So these are companies with significant exposure to China, but some of them are so huge that it's still not like a major part of their revenue. But if you're trepidatious about it and don't know if you want to pull the trigger on a Chinese company itself, here are some good options to wade into that water. The first is Starbucks. We all know Starbucks. They're transitioning into more of a fast food brand here, transitioning most of their stores, at least in my area, to a drive-through model where there's still the Starbucks store, but they've got a typical drive-through. So I think that's going to open them up to some new areas and to a lower consumer income demographic that I think will be good for them, actually. Um, they've kind of been heading that direction for a while there, but it'll be interesting to see how costly that endeavor has been for them in their earnings report. But I think that's going to drive some growth for them long term. And their stock has been depressed for a while. So Starbucks, I think, is at a great buy point here long term as an investor. Their U.S. growth has been stalling, but their Chinese growth has been growing very quickly and they've been expanding a lot in China. So I would definitely check out Starbucks if you want another play on the consumer market in China. To go along with that, McDonald's China is, of course, very big, as McDonald's is everywhere. The plan McDonald's China is MCD, which is McDonald's, ticker. They own a 20% stake in McDonald's China. And CG, which is Carlyle Group, they're a private equity group here, and they own a 28% stake in McDonald's China. It's a little odd because Carlyle Group typically invents in defense and aerospace, but they do have some consumer investments as well. So that was obviously a great addition um, when they had the opportunity to invest in McDonald's there. That leads us to our next one, which is Walmart. Walmart doesn't have a huge presence in China like it does in the US, but it does operate about 400 to 500 stores, some Sam's Clubs, and online retail for Sam's Club and Walmart. But their biggest uh, move in China has been increasing its ownership in JD.com, which is the largest e-commerce site in China by revenue. They now own about 12% of JD. They've doubled that stake over the past year and a half. So Walmart has really been aggressive in pursuing this partnership, and I like it a lot. JD is essentially the Amazon of China. And uh, I think that this partnership, not just in China, but worldwide, is really going to make Walmart a much stronger competitor to Amazon over the long term. And I would not be surprised if we see their partnership with JD expanding to online retail in places like South America, Europe and India, other markets that I can see JD and Walmart both having a mutual interest in. 
Then there's Apple, which is pretty obvious. You know, they sell a lot of iPhones in China and they have a lot of low price competition in China, which is the hard part for them. But they obviously still manufacture a lot of their products there, have a big supply chain there. So Apple is a good way to invest in that market. Caterpillar is unsurprisingly a great company to invest in because they provide a lot of infrastructure equipment to China. And uh, with Xi Jinping's new Silk Road trade initiative that aims to greatly expand China's trade with other emerging markets around the world, this is going to continue to be a heavy investment for them. And Caterpillar is probably the U.S. infrastructure company with the most exposure to that market. That's just CAT, the ticker there. There's also Qualcomm, which is a computer chip manufacturer. They also license technology for mobile phones like 3G, 4G technology. About 70 to 80 percent of their revenue comes from China. Qualcomm is famous for having legal battles and being challenged for their licensing model by Apple is the biggest one right now, but it's been other companies in the past and there's been government scrutiny placed on them. So somewhat risky investment, but Qualcomm is a great dividend growth company, one of the strongest dividends and dividend growth records in the entire market. So Qualcomm is a good play on the chip market in China. Another good play on the consumer market and especially the high-end consumer market with the expansion of these luxury goods platforms on Alibaba and JD, there's been a big race for that, is Moet Hennessy Louis Vuitton. LVMUI is the ticker. China is now the largest luxury goods market for them with the fastest growth rate. So they're putting a lot of effort there. They're expanding their stores. Sometimes they're consolidating the number of stores, but making more of flagship store type experiences for customers. So they're making their stores bigger and nicer and just a great stock in general. They also own Sephora. So they just have a lot of extremely successful, I would say wide moat brands. So if you want to get into the luxury space, LVMUY, Moe Hennessy Louis Vuitton, is a great place to start. The last one is Honeywell. That's H-O-N is the ticker. Honeywell is a great technology, water, green technology, aerospace, defense company. They do a lot of things, but it's a fantastic company, fantastic dividend growth company. And they are probably the best way to gain exposure to China's green energy boom and their efforts to clean up the pollution in that country. Honeywell provides a lot of equipment and technology for filtration and cleaning air and water. So they're a great company, I think, to gain exposure to China's energy revolution. Lastly, I wanted to go through a few ETFs and mutual funds. For those of you who prefer ETFs, obviously you reduce single stock risk with an ETF. You can gain exposure to a lot of these companies for a very low expense ratio. And if you don't have that much money, this is a good way to own all these companies without having to fork over hundreds of dollars per share. One that I just came across recently that I actually really like is CXSE. That's the Wisdom Tree China X State Owned Enterprises ETF. So that basically just means it's the China market index minus all of the state owned enterprises. Like I said, that takes a lot of the government risk out of things. There's always going to be regulatory risk with the private companies, but less government control over things like the dividends and the corporate policies. So a lot of people like excluding those state owned enterprises from the China index to possibly get more growth and less of a value play where you've got these more stagnant companies that just pay dividends but don't grow that much. There's also, if you want to focus on technology, there's CQQQ, which is the Guggenheim Chinese Technology ETF. This is essentially like the NASDAQ, but for China. They've performed phenomenally over the last year, of course. There's also QWEB, K-W-E-B. That's the CraneShares China Internet ETF. So that's going to be basically CQQQ minus all of the chip makers and stuff like that. This is really just internet companies like Alibaba, Tencent, NetEase, and on down the line. Then there's MCHI, that's M-C-H-I is the ticker. That's the iShares China ETF or GXC, that's the SPDR China ETF. Those are just straight China index ETFs. They're weighted slightly differently. I think MCHI has a higher technology allocation, I think, than GXC, but both very cheap, very good ETFs. I would recommend those for investors thinking about simple China index ETF for the long term. The other index ETFs for emerging markets, of course, are just VWO is Vanguard's, SCHE is Schwab's, and EEM is iShares. EEM has a bit 
of a higher expense ratio, but it's a great ETF. And I think their weighting methodology is worth the extra expense ratio. But those are all very low cost ETFs that'll give you some China exposure, but also exposure to the other emerging markets around the world. And then the last thing is just a few active mutual funds for those of you who might be limited in terms of your fund selection with the 401k plan, or maybe you invest at TD Ameritrade and you like their no transaction fee mutual funds. And sometimes it's good, especially in emerging markets or markets that you're not that familiar with, to have a really experienced management team making these decisions for you. Of these, I really like Fidelity's fund, that's F-S-E-A-X, that's Fidelity's Asia fund, T-Row Prices Asia Fund, which is P-R-A-S-X. So those aren't specifically China, but they're heavily weighted in China. And they have a great management team, in my opinion. So you can know that your money is in very good hands. For someone who is okay with taking a little more risk, there's the Matthews China Fund. That's M-C-H-F-X. So that's just a China fund. But Matthews, especially in Asia, really is a very good asset manager and has a very good performance record there. So I would definitely check out the Matthews China Fund if you just want a China-focused active mutual fund. That concludes today's episode of Obsessed with Investing. If you like the show, please subscribe, tell your friends, and rate us on iTunes. Those iTunes ratings really help us climb the charts and reach a larger audience. If you have any questions or comments, please email me at obsessedwithinvestingpodcast at gmail.com or valueprofinvesting at gmail.com. Thank you so much for tuning in once again, and I can't wait to see you all back here next week. Until then, happy investing, and we'll see you next time.